Turn with me to Daniel chapter 6 as we continue to work through the book of Daniel. Daniel is divided into two distinct sections. There is a story or a narrative of Daniel's life, and we're going to be done with that in chapter 6. Not to say that some of his life isn't mentioned after 6, but mostly after 6 is a lot of prophecy. And so it's going to be taking us into a different portion of the book, and it's going to have a different feel to it, altogether different. And so I encourage you to, to read ahead, listen to the book of Daniel, some kind of audio book or something like that over this week, to just get a feel for that, particularly chapter 7 as we're going to be in that next week, encourage you to do that. But today we have before us chapter 6, and before we go to God's word, let's go to him in prayer and ask for help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we come as a people who have been called to know you, have been called to know the things that you require of us, and the way that we can do both is by your word. In fact, the only way that we can know about you, to know the things that you require of us, is in your word. So, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would do just that for us. Just as we have been called to do these things, these are two things that we often fight against, even as your covenant people called by your name. Lord, we pray that you would change us, that even with your word, that you would transform us, by the renewing of our minds in Christ our Lord, and this is in his name we pray, amen. As I read through this book, and even and even coming to this chapter dealing with the lion's den, it made me think of a particular time in Christian history and a particular person in Christian history uh, named Blondina. Blondina was a 15-year-old girl, and she was persecuted under... Marcus Aurelius, around 170 A.D. She was a slave, was also a Christian, and she, along with many other Christians, would be arrested just because they were Christians, because they would not uh, name Caesar God, and they would only worship Christ as God. So she was tortured so much so that her tormentors said of her that they do not know what more we can do to her. They, were, they exhausted themselves torturing this 15-year-old girl. Uh, her fellow believers attempted even to shield her f- from it and torture, shield her from this because she was said to have been really small and frail. But over and over again, she confessed, I am a Christian. And over and over again, they took her out and they tortured her in front of people. They eventually tied her to a stake and set wild beasts on her. And according to legend... The beasts would not touch her. In our text today from Daniel, we have another believer that is set before wild beasts. And like the story in church history, the beasts would not touch him. It's a story we've all heard of Daniel in the lion's den and how God shuts the mouths of the lions. And if we aren't careful with this text, we might find it as yet another reason to make a hero out of Daniel. But we know the real truth of it here. While Daniel is to be commended for his faith, that he was found blameless before God, he is not our hero today by any stretch. 
As we've worked through this book over and over, we've seen a picture of kings and rulers who have set themselves up as the hero. They've even set up giant statues to somehow prove that they are the hero, who set the people of God to be enemies and ultimately confessed God, though, as he indeed says he is. We're going to see that exact same pattern here today. It's going to look a lot like the other chapters that we've studied So I hope that we see again that Christ is the true King of kings, and he alone deserves our honor, praise, and glory. So as we work through this text, I want to consider three main ideas. First, two kingdoms, one king, then faithful till the end, and then finally the true Lion of God. And with that, let's look together at the text, Daniel chapter 6, looking at it in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Daniel 6, starting at verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and prefects and the satraps and counselors and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber and opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition against any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored until sun, and till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded that Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. 
And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it and his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and slept fled from him. Sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent an angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were, were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. His, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel, so this Daniel prospered under King, or the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for some context, a few things to consider before we get into our text today. First, uh, just the whole animal thing, uh, you know, I teach biology and I love the study of animals and it was pretty common for kings to keep a strange menagerie of animals around them. They did that for normal, for all, lots of reasons, none of it was normal, but uh, they did it for sport, they would like set the lions loose and then hunt them, you know, or they did it for curiosity, just to kind of like, see, look what I have, you know, they had, it was just weird. You see that in a lot of places. You even see it today as people like to collect exotic kinds of pets. Of course, you don't see that used as a form of execution so much today, but people still gather these sorts of things together. It was a lot more common in the older days, however, as it was, as it was a, a way to leave the punishment of a person to an unthinking, unfeeling entity like an animal. It was kind of a way to remove yourself from it. Daniel's going to be killed by the lions, not us. Another issue that is uh, in the person of this person named Darius, or King Darius, since historians are really unsure who he was. There's a lot of debate even among Christians, and while Christians wonder who he was and offer suggestions, this definitely isn't something to divide over at all. Who was this Darius that is mentioned here at the beginning of chapter 6, and is he Cyrus, and there's all these other things going on. But the unbelieving world definitely sees this as something to divide over. They use instances like this in order to sow discord into the narrative of the Christian faith. And it works so many times as Christians will 
use their study and suggestions rather than their own, and they'll think of it as kind of academic and, well, have you read this before? Many times in academia, the Bible is guilty of fraud until proven innocent. And you see this over and over again in lots of places in the Bible because when a book claims absolute authority and teaches us about God and teaches us about our sin and of the Savior for that sin being one man, Jesus Christ, of course people are going to question it. And while other historical texts have, are lightly scrutinized at best, the Bible is turned upside down and shaken vigorously over and over in any attempt to discredit it. But yet it remains unscathed, as unscathed as the God of the Bible. Now, this is an important lesson for us as Christians, particularly even as the church. We're going to find reasons to divide over just about anything, as even, and even over very plain teachings, as we've seen in another denomination in our country this week. God's Word speaks very plainly, and though we may not like its conclusions, we aren't given latitude as to whether or not we should follow them, as we, whether or not we ought to follow them. We aren't given license to take things away that we don't like or add things that we'd rather be there either. We'll see that with Daniel. He had a lifetime of taking God at his word, serving him faithfully in spite of continued persecution. We do well to follow Daniel as he points us to God's word and points us ultimately to Christ. And that brings us to the first point, two kingdoms, one king. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. One of the things that we've seen a bunch in Daniel is this idea of kingdoms and rulers and kings with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and now Darius or Darius. And a few things have been consistent. They, that there are, and these remain consistent with our rulers today even, that they are always looking out for themselves over even and against the ones whom they rule or they claim to serve. Darius feared loss, and so he appointed 123 people to make sure he wasn't losing anything. I mean, this guy had vast wealth and land, and he didn't want to lose a single inch or a single penny of it. So 120 satraps, which are basically like governors, set over the land. And then three people set over those governors to make sure that those governors were doing what they ought to be doing. And then he even wanted to make Daniel the leader of those rulers because he wanted to make sure those rulers were doing what they ought to be doing. This is the way of the world. Doing what it can to secure the most things, then protect and hoard those things at all costs. And if you can't have those things, then it is only right to make sure that others can't enjoy them is exactly what you see in verses 4 and 5, as those officials don't like what Daniel has, and they want to take it from him. If he can't have it, then no one can. They try to find a way to discredit him, but they can't because Daniel was a man above reproach. Daniel, at this point in his life, understand, was probably a 70 or 80-year-old man, and so he's demonstrated himself to be above reproach over and over again. So when they realize they won't be able to find any real means to trap him, they create a system that makes Daniel a criminal. 
Just like in our own day, the people under the ruler prove to be the tail that wags the dog. Having him sign some kind of irrevocable law that is specific to a situation that will best help them and hurt everyone else. Especially their chosen enemy, Daniel. Honestly, this portion of chapter 6 is very much like our other chapters, chapters 1 through 5, is it not? Where the man of God sets himself apart from the people of the world. And it's not even in a subtle way. It's overt. It's right here in front of us. It's easy to see. It's easy to tell the truth from the deceit most of the time. And in Daniel, it's been very plain. In Daniel's friends that we looked at earlier, it's very, very plain to us. And we could skip over these worldview contests, especially since we've dealt with similar things in the past. But I think we ought to park here for a moment and understand why this is so important to the Christian walk, particularly as we're getting ready to kind of leave this and go into some prophecy. And honestly, the prophecy is on the heels of this, and we can't really understand it unless we understand the first portion of the book. It's inherently different to the Christian walk than that of the world. So just to kind of give you an understanding of the way this works, just, just imagine that if you thought that in 10 years, 10 years is an arbitrary number, you can choose whatever number you'd like, that in 10 years' time, everything, including yourself, would disappear, that there would be no trace of you or anything that you owned or any of your ownership or anything. That people would stop saying your name. Well, what would you do inside of those 10 years' time? Well, it's probably either one of two choices. You would seek sink into an incurable depression. You would hide yourself away from the world and just kind of await your demise. Or the opposite end of that. You'd seek to grab everything you could for yourself, every pleasure, every power, every person, whatever you could do in order to make your short stay here as good as you could for yourself, even in spite of and against others. Whoever got in your way would lose. It didn't matter how badly you had to treat them. You were going to win. This is set against the eternal perspective that we have in Christ, which says that those things that matter will indeed last forever. That over and over in Scripture we are presented with things that are passing away, that are turning to dust. Even our own lives are called but a vapor. But that the worship of God is eternal. That eventually every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he indeed is Lord. Those who call upon the Lord Jesus on earth will spend an eternity with him. Those who refuse to do so will spend an eternity without him. But both are going to live for all eternity. And so that we know that is true, then how do we change the way that we live and see the world? Well, we assign the things of this world a whole lot less value. And we value eternal things a lot more. We love God with all of our hearts. We love our neighbors as ourselves. We see the world differently because of what we have in Christ. And it saddens me then to see so many Christians who know this truth yet choose to live the lie of the world. They know there is an eternity. They know that things have inherent value and things and other things don't. Yet they live as if we only have just a few years left. Hoarding and gathering, lying and cheating, 
pushing down while pushing themselves up, all in an attempt to gather more dust than the guy next to them. We expect this out of the world and its leaders, and that's exactly what we see in this book over and over again as we look at the leaders of this book, but we shouldn't see that in the church. 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 17, 15 through 17 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Daniel understood that this world is passing away, and it changed the way that he lived, even in the face of persecution and over and over again in the face of death. He saw the world passing away actively as Babylon came and went right before him, and the Persians are coming, and he knows that they're also going. Nations rise and fall, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. As we look at Daniel in these next few verses, we see this very plainly in his life, and that brings us to the next point, faithful to the end. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, this irrevocable document that said that they should only worship Darius and no other gods for 30 days, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber toward Jerusalem, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So he knew the decree had been signed, yet he prayed anyway. He wasn't praying in order to defy. It wasn't that the law was sent out and he's like, okay, then I'm going to do this. In defiance, this is something that had been a normal part of his worship leading up to this point, as we're told. He just chose to continue to do the things that he was doing because the commandment of God, of course, has more weight than the commandment of man, no matter who that man is. In his prayer, of course, though, he defied Darius and his irrevocable law, the law of the Medes and the Persians that shall not go away, but he would not worship Darius or anyone or anything other than the one true God. And if this scene were a movie, you know exactly what it would look like, right? You'd see Daniel praying in his room, and then it would kind of pan back, and you'd see this wall, and it would be dark behind the wall, and there would be like a dude standing back there like he's, he's looking at it, you know. You'd see this, you'd see him, and the officials would be back there, and they'd be wringing their hands in delight. They had Daniel. Now they were going to go tattle on him to Darius. That's exactly what they do. But as we read through this, we get the idea that Darius did not want to do what he was bound to do. He was tricked, even though he had absolute authority, he was tricked by these people that were under him, the tail that wags the dog, so to speak, to do something that he didn't want to do. Now, that doesn't hold him guiltless in no way. He didn't have to do what he did, but he did what he did anyway, because, you know, who's he to say that the law of the Medes and Persians, which is not going to be around for very much longer, because the Medes and the Persians aren't going to be around for very much longer, but he did it anyway. Daniel wasn't someone he wanted to get rid of because Daniel was a good guy. Daniel was the best at helping him keep all of his things, right? But he had to do this in order to save face. 
They, sure, they made sure to remind Darius even that Daniel was, look, Daniel's not even all that important verse 12. They came there and they, they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you shall be cast into the den of lions? This, the king said, This thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered, said before the king, Daniel, who's, he's just one of the exiles from Judah. He's not that important. He pays no attention to you, O king. So even as the king attempted to save him, you see this in verse 14, as he heard these words and was distressed and wanted to deliver Daniel and even labored until the sun went down to do this. He ends up putting Daniel in the den of lions, but not without stating that he hoped everything was going to be okay, Daniel. I hope everything's going to be all right for you because this God that you obey, maybe he can deliver you. This scene reminds me a bit of Pilate with Jesus as Pilate was reluctant to crucify Jesus because of his own concerns and even his wife had nightmares about this and he washed his hands of that, but it didn't hold him guiltless at all. He went through it in the end because the fear of man wins in the world every time. I've been slow to point out the faithfulness of Daniel in this book, but only because he was oftentimes been used, even in my own life and I'm sure in your life as well, to make us feel like we are less Christian. Because, I mean, look at him. Who can even get close to being as faithful as Daniel was? We are called to faithfulness, but no one can match up to this kind of otherworldly faithfulness that Daniel has. But now I do want to draw attention to it. Not only that, I want to call you to that kind of faithfulness. And understand, we aren't called to have this kind of faithfulness, and it's not this kind of faithfulness that saves us. But we should all aspire to this as believers. What does this faith look like? What does Daniel's faith look like? It's not like it's something just inordinately difficult. Honestly, it's a faith that values truth. It values the worship of God. It values man's duty to his fellow man. Even those that we have significant disagreements with, can't you say that Daniel pretty much disagrees with every person he's come in contact with in this story, except for his three friends that were mentioned earlier? Significant disagreements, but we only ever see him treating people with absolute dignity and respect, the exact opposite as he was treated. His faith is overt, but it's not arrogant. It's not hidden, but it's also not seeking to impress others, which are two different things. It's sure, but not in itself. It's sure of its object of faith, the one true God. And it's that last one that oftentimes gets us, I believe, in the Christian faith. Because in our attempts to live like Daniel, we can be guilty of desiring a faith that we can trust in. Rather than trusting in our faith, we should be trusting in our living God. Many of us have been taught to do this even from an early age. When you have doubts, 
Just remember that time that you first trusted in Him. That even been told to go look at the front of your Bible, the date that you wrote there, and remember that and have faith in that. We trust lots of things as Christians who want to seek after God and should. We can trust in our faith. We can trust in our doctrine. We can trust in one another even. We can trust in ourselves. But none of these things are the object of our faith. God alone is the object of our faith who is going to give us truth, who deserves to be worshipped, who tells us what our duty is to him and to our fellow man. And does God do what he says he's going to do? Yes, always. But when I trust in my own abilities, I can't be trusted because I don't always mean what I say. I don't always do the things I ought to do. And so when I look at myself, of course my assurance is going to suffer. When a believer is struggling with assurance, they are always looking to themselves to do the work of salvation that has already been done in Christ. That is what we should see with Daniel. He never does that in our time with him. I'm not saying he never did that in his life, but we don't see that of him. There must have been times of difficulty for him. We're even going to see it as we get into the prophecy section. But the, what, we, what we read from him in the text, there must have been some very difficult times in his life. But the only thing that we see is he only ever looks to God for his salvation, remembering that, it was, that he is the God of his salvation. Again, Daniel was probably a man of 70 or 80 by this point in the story. He knows that they are looking for him to fail. And, you know, we would probably even allow it at this point in his life, being as old as he is. But yet he chooses to worship God nonetheless. Why? Because who else is worthy? Darius? Nebuchadnezzar? Any of these other people? Who else is worthy of our worship? Who else is able to save? Who else has brought him this far? Other kings have come and gone. A whole nation has risen and fell before his eyes, yet God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Of course, Daniel should trust in him, and we should too. And for that, he's thrown to the lions. That brings us to the last point, the true lion. Look with me at verse 16. When the king commanded that Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions, the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you continually serve, deliver you. So he's thrown into a den with hungry lions. The king went all night and we're, we're told that the king had no food or no diversions. When I saw the word diversions, I thought games. So he wasn't playing any games or food or sleep. He did nothing that night. He just had a horrible night. And he woke up the next morning and he shouted into the den hoping that Daniel's God would have actually saved him. And he did. Verse 20. As he came to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths, that they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm." 
The Lord sent an angel to shut the lions' mouths. Why? Well, it tells us why. Because Daniel was found blameless before God and before King Darius. And we get that again in verse 23. The king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he trusted in his God. And this king gives us a kind of hard poetic justice here that the two other officials and their whole families were thrown into the den. This is just history. It's not obviously condoning this. Everybody was thrown into the den of lions and they're devoured so much so the text makes sure that we understand that they didn't even hit the bottom. Before they hit the bottom, all of their bones were broken in pieces, which is a one definitely one way to describe that just in case we doubted the lion's abilities and on cue with all of this happening we have another pagan king who sees the mighty works of God and then pays God the true honor and glory that he has deserved verse 25 and following then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations languages that dwell on the earth peace be multiplied to you I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion is shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. As we said with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar before, we can't know the hearts of these men making these confessions, but we can agree on the confessions that they make. Only a living God shuts the mouths of lions and delivers and rescues and works signs and wonders and has the power to save. And hopefully that's where we stop. That he has the power to save whom he will and rescues and delivers whom he will. Because many times we keep going, saying that he has the power to save if we are faithful like Daniel or Noah or Abraham or David. Or we like to fill in the blank with some hero that we've made, even modern day heroes, who increasingly we're seeing are no heroes at all. Blondina was faithful. Over and over she said, I am a Christian this 15-year-old, small, frail girl. She endured torture that many others had already succumbed to. She was presented to beasts, but those beasts would not touch her. And they had grown tired of her, the Romans. So they placed her on a hot grate. They wrapped her up in a net. They threw her to a wild bull who threw her around a little bit. And then finally, seeing that she was still not dead, they went and stabbed her through the heart, sending her finally to be with her Lord Jesus, the true Lion of Judah. Blondina was faithful in any way and every way that I can't possibly comprehend in my own life. Yet she was tortured and died. Abraham was faithful and passed his wife off as his sister. Noah was faithful and got drunk at the ark after party. David was faithful, was a serial adulterer and murderer. 
Just because we read that God saved Daniel because he trusted in God, we shouldn't take from that that it is our faithfulness that is necessary and required of us. The faith that we have is a gift to us from the God that we serve. By grace, through faith, we are saved. This is a gift. Why? So that no one can boast. This is exactly what we see over and over in Daniel's life. If anyone in the Bible could boast of their faithfulness to their God, it could be Daniel. But he doesn't. Ever. He doesn't. He does boast in the Lord alone. Over and over. We see that in his story. We're going to see that in his prophecy as well. Though he lived a blameless life, he still needed a Savior. And Jesus was and is that Savior. Daniel looked forward to his day and he knows him now. Jesus is still the only Savior today. Just because we fast forward several thousand years doesn't mean we've changed anything. If you're trusting in your own good works, they cannot save you. No matter how good that you think they are, even if you're better than Daniel, which you might be, I don't know, you still need Jesus. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you can, you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved today. For the believers that are here, the same exhortation is to you. You do not have to be like Daniel in order to be saved or to stay saved. Thanks be to God. Yet as a people who have been saved, we are called to live a faithful life. Like Daniel, like Blondina, like many before us. A faithful life does not guarantee an easy life, but that's not why we do it. Daniel's life is a testimony to the fact that while faithful, while a faithful life doesn't guarantee freedom from trial, if anyone faced trial in their life, Daniel did, it is still the thing that we're called to do as Christians. Brothers and sisters in Christ, trust in God alone for your salvation. He has saved you. He will continue to do so. And live a life faithful to God and to his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we see here on the pages of the scripture, a faithful life, even as we read the pages of the church's history and read about faithful men and women of old and long to have a faith that is even a modicum of theirs, Lord, we are thankful of Jesus because of the gift of faith that we have we don't have to muster up anything of our own. It is a gift that we have. It is a gift that we keep on getting. Lord, help us to place that faith in you. To not seek out any other Savior, but to learn to rest more and more in you. That we would find peace in you and not in the world where there is no hope of peace. In Christ alone, there is the hope of peace. And Lord, help us not only to find that and know that for ourselves, but to be faithful to share that to others, to be faithful to the commission you have given us to make disciples of all nations, teaching them how they ought to live. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.